Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jingyi Li from the University of Arizona. Today, we have Thomas Lockley with us to talk about his new book, African Samurai, the true story of Yasuke, a legendary black warrior in feudal Japan. This book was published in 2019 through Hangover Square Press with Geoffrey Gerard as a co-author, and a new paperback version came out uh, just earlier this year. In this book, the two authors unfold the life story of Yasuke, the one and only African samurai in 16th century Japan. If this sounds familiar to you, our listeners, it's because there is a movie based on the same historical story that's coming out on Netflix, and it's the last movie of Chadwick Boseman. So welcome, Tom. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So um, before we dive into the book, can we talk about you for a second here? Um this new book of yours might read too many like a novel, but uh, to my understanding, you're not a novelist? No, I'm not. Um, I did uh, originally write an academic book of this, which was published in Japanese. And um, that was, I think, 2017. So the book which you would find in front of you, African Samurai, is a much more... Um, readable version less academic far more narrative um though it's still based on the exact factual history it's just simply not full of uh references and other things like that if you want the references they're all at the back of the book in a bibliography section so you can see them if you want to nice i'll definitely check that out so um if you're not a novelist what do you actually do um, I'm a, an associate professor at Nihon University College of Law in Tokyo. Um, I teach uh, courses on education. I teach courses on English. Um, and I use as the content of my courses stories like Yaskets. So stories which are compelling for the students and make them want to learn uh, more about the world and languages and other things like that. That's very interesting. Um, so how did you um, came to choose to pursue teaching this, or I guess language and um, history as a career? Um, I've been a teacher now for 20 years, 20, 21 years. And uh, most of that has been um, spent teaching languages. I, in the UK, I was teaching uh, French, German, and a little bit of Japanese as well. And then when I came back to Japan about 12 years ago uh, with my wife, uh, there wasn't much demand for uh, French and German teaching from a British person. So I switched to teaching English and also to teaching my specialism, which is actually education uh, and ways of teaching languages. That's wonderful. That's really nice that you get to teach language while doing research in topics that you're interested in. I'm very jealous of that. <laughs> it's good fun, I have to say. 
<laughs> okay, nice. Now perhaps we can turn to the book.、Um, so for our listeners who hasn't read the book yet, can you tell us what this book is all about? So I, I only introduced it briefly in the beginning of our conversation. But who is Yasuke? How did an African person end up in Japan in the 16th century? And what did he do in Japan? Okay, so we'll start with the first question: Who is Yasuke? Yasuke was a young African man、uh, born around about 1555 to 1560.、Uh, he Uh, was trafficked as a child, almost definitely to India, and then in India he eventually、uh, enters the service of a Jesuit missionary、uh, called Alessandro Valiano, and Valiano was on a tour of the Asian Catholic missions. He was a Jesuit, so、um, th- there was quite a new order of missionaries, and he was touring. Uh, it was the first proper inspection tour、uh, by somebody sent from Rome, so he was a very, very important person. And Yasuke was his bodyguard. So they go to Japan as the furthest flung of the missions, and Yasuke, of course, accompanies、uh, Valiano. And then, when Valiano has spent two years in Japan, he wants to get permission from the most powerful warlord of the time. He Goes to Kyoto to ask this warlord, whose name is Oda Nobunaga, mostly just normally known as Nobunaga. Now, Nobunaga happens to be one of the most famous characters in Japanese history, if not the most famous character. So, the fact that Yasuke then、uh, becomes linked to Nobunaga、um, means that Yasuke, of course, is an extremely well-known character in Japanese history, in Japan at least, and hopefully, he will become. Better known around the world, if people、uh, are able to、um, access th- this book, <laughs> he, <laughs> yeah. Yes.、Uh, so、um, Valiano asks Nobunaga for permission to leave the country.、Uh, of course, he's given permission, but at the same time, Yasuke is a massive source of fascination, both for Nobunaga and for the people of Kyoto and Sakai, which is just west of. Modern-day Osaka.、Um, the, the 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 sources record how、um, he the, the the public just couldn't get enough of him. They were trying to touch him. They were、uh, s- sitting on top of shops or houses to get a good view of him.、Uh, he caused a riot and had to、um, take refuge in the the church in Kyoto, the the mission、wow. church. Uh, even people died in the riot; they were crushed to death outside. Oh wow! It, it was—it must have been quite a、um, quite a special moment. Anyway, Yaskin would, of course, have been extremely nervous and、uh, and very scared for his life at this point. But then Nobunaga has heard the riot, and he demands to hear who is disturbing his peace.、Uh, he sends soldiers; they clean up the rioters、uh, and summon Yaskin. To the audience with Nobunaga immediately. Now Nobunaga、uh, doesn't believe that Yasuke's skin color is black, so he does what we would not do today. Be extremely unpolitically correct today. He asks Yasuke to strip to the waist. He orders a brush and water, and he scrubs Yasuke's sin- skin to find、Ooh. out whether whether it's、uh, real or not. Because I mean, if you think about it. 
people in those days did wear war paint. Uh, it was perfectly possible uh, also that the Jesuits were trying to impress him with, uh, impress Nobunaga, this is, um, with uh, another novel uh, person. I mean, to Nobunaga's eyes and to the other people around him, the Jesuits themselves were extremely different and extremely interesting just because they looked different and were from a totally different racial type from any that had really been in Japan before. So this this is a source of extreme fascination for everybody. And Nobunaga asks Valiano if Yasuke can join him into his service. And of course, Valiano can't say no. Uh, you'd, nobody said no to Nobunaga. It would have been a silly idea. Uh, you'd have lost your head pretty quickly. Um, so uh, Yasuke then enters uh, Nobunaga's service. Um, we don't know initially what he did, but within a month or two, there's another source which says he's become Nobunaga's weapon bearer. Uh, we also find that he has been given a house, uh, in Japanese, a yashiki. Um, not quite a mansion, but an official dwelling uh he's been given servants he's been given uh, money and to cap it all he's given a sword now the sword is the key point here because yasuke is a warrior and nobunaga is also a warrior and nobunaga is recognizing that he has become a samurai um, by doing this and in japan he's yasuke is considered to be the first samurai of foreign extraction the first samurai of foreign birth now i'm sure there were others before this because uh, there must have been uh, Koreans especially but also Chinese renegades, pirates who would have fought for Japanese lords uh, in one way or another Um, but they are not recorded in the book, in the history books either in Japan or abroad that we know of so um, this is why we can say that Yasuke is the first recorded foreign samurai Um, so that's basically uh, the the crux of Yasuke's story um, and how he got to Japan. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And I'll definitely come back to some of the details you mentioned. So this book, um, it, it was such an enjoyable reading for me. And as we talked about earlier, many may read this book as a novel because of, well, apart from the very specific um, historic background, there's also a lot of depictions of the characters, um, um, I guess, inner development. Um, But it's category on Amazon and Goodreads is biography. Yeah. Um, well, personally, I feel like it's more of a historical fiction. So how would you define the nature of this book? Well, there's very, very little there which is actually fiction. There are various scenes which were added because we knew that they might have happened. There's one scene where uh, Yasuke is, is watching a hawking session uh, and... We know that Nobunaga was was almost obsessed by hawking and and hunting with birds. So therefore, it's highly likely. I mean, we can say probably we're 99% sure that Yasuke would have seen that. So we did make up the occasional scene just to give a little bit of atmosphere, if you like. Um, Other points where it's a little bit more, um, should we say, descriptive, 
um, mm-hmm. when they're arriving in Japan at the beginning, for example. Well, I, I went there. I did. I went on a boat and entered that harbor in the same way that they would have done. Uh, therefore, it's written from um, the perspective of somebody coming into that harbor, uh, which is called Kuchinotsu and is on Kyushu. Now, we can't say that Yasuke saw exactly the same things that I did, but we can say that he saw similar things. And as the time of year was similar, uh, the weather was probably similar, etc., etc. However, as far as possible, apart from those small um, atmospheric details, we have tried to keep exactly to the facts as uh, we know them from the sources about his life, but also we know what was happening to Nobunaga on a daily basis, and we know what's happening to Valiano on an almost daily basis. So we can assume from there that Yasuke is experiencing and seeing those same things. That's very cool. And uh, now that you mention um, these historical facts, um, I'm very interested. So as a as a be historian myself, I'm very interested in what kind of sources did you have to re- rely on to tell the story of this person from 400 years ago? Good question. Uh, there's three main, in fact, four main types of sources. The first one was the Jesuits themselves. They wrote letters, they wrote reports about what was going on in their mission in Japan or in, in anywhere in uh, the world where they were carrying out a mission. So uh, we have those reports. And I think off the top of my head, there's around about five mentions of Yasuke within those reports. We have a second bunch of Jesuit writings from Uh, 60 to 100 years afterwards. They're reporting on the Japanese mission, the history of the Japanese mission, and they're repeating the original uh, sources, but they also add some other stuff, which makes me think sometimes that we've lost sources along the way. There's a few things which have been uh, clearly... They're written from the same sources, but they're also... They've got a little bit more story around them. Uh, For example, the scrubbing brush... Uh, incident was not in one of the original sources that I have seen, but it must have been somewhere in a lost source because it's reported um, in 1645 by another Jesuit writer who's writing history of the Japanese mission. And so that's two sources. The third source is the Japanese sources, which are slightly less. Uh, there's two main ones, but they are. Uh, very detailed, uh, and they give more specific details about, for example, the fact that he, uh, his name, for example, Yasuke. The Jesuits never refer to him by a name, so we don't know his original name. Uh, they just call him the black man that uh, Valiano brought with him to Japan. So um, the uh, Japanese sources mention his name was Yasuke. And they mentioned that he had a stipend. They don't mention how much, unfortunately, which is rather a shame. Um, then there's another type of Japanese source, which is pictures. Um, there's about three pictures of a man that is very, very likely to be Yasuke. One of them uh, is a picture of him sumo wrestling uh, with Nobunaga's warriors. And Nobunaga is the adjudicator, the referee in this sumo match. So we know that it's Nobunaga. We know that the black man 
associated with Nobunaga must be Yasuke. So I, I can say with 99% certainty that that's a depiction of Yasuke. However, it was done, the picture was done at least 20 years after the event. Um, so therefore, it's unlikely to be a portrait of Yasuke. It's likely to be an artist's interpretation of the story of Yasuke. So we've got that picture. And we've got several other pictures as well um, done in lacquerware of this very, very tall black man, extremely richly dressed. He has two swords. He has um, um, velvet cloaks and silken slippers on his feet. Um, It could have been another very rich black man. Of course, there there were quite a lot of Africans in Japan at this time. Um, But it, it... it is likely that it's Yasuke because of the swords and because of the way he's depicted. Finally, there are a lot of sources of sightings or interactions with other Africans um, in Japan at the time. Very few of them could be Yasuke, but some of them really could almost be Yasuke. But the problem is they refer to him by different names. They refer to him in different places, under different lords, uh, in different lord service, I mean. And therefore, um, it, it it's difficult to say whether they are Yasuke or not. But the book very much goes into that. It separates out the story as we know the sources are Yasuke's sources, definitely referring to him, and uh, the sources uh, that are referring to somebody who could be Yasuke um, after he falls out of the pages of history, so to speak. That's very fascinating. Um, Actually, when I was reading your book, I was um, reminded of Silence, the novel Silence, written by Endo Shusaku, Hmm. because he also um, used a lot of Jesuit records. um, And, uh, well, it's roughly 100 years later, um, after the story of Yasuke, but the the um, type of sources that you relied on seem very similar to me. Um, Endo Shusaku uh, wrote Silence very much from a Jesuit perspective. Um, I've tried not to take a Jesuit perspective. I've tried to take an independent perspective and balance out all of the uh, sources. Um, Jeffrey as well was very... Uh, sorry, my co-author Jeffrey as well was very, very keen to try and get that balance. We don't want to um, look at it just from one side of the picture. Endor also wrote a book on Yasuke, actually. Um, it was, I think, before Silence. Uh, he wrote it in 1971. Um, so he, he was also looking at the Jesuit sources and found Yasuke within them, uh, just the same as, as me and Jeffrey did. That's that's very interesting. I'll definitely have to check out the other book of Endo Suzaku. Um, so as you mentioned earlier, and you also wrote in the book, that Yasuke's arrival in Japan during the med- medieval period stirred quite a lot of interest in him as no one had ever seen a darker colored person before. Um, I'd like to hear more about the story in this respect because... There seem to be all kinds of stories regarding um, what Yasuke did in Japan, why or how he became a samurai, and why Nobunaga favored him so much. 
there are even, I believe, stories about his role in the last um, life event of Nobunaga. Some people say that Yasuke was the one that um, helped Nobunaga um, decapitate himself. Yep. Yeah. So could you elaborate on your thoughts on this matter of these various um, versions of Yasuke's life story and how you and your co-author settled on this uh, this narrative that you chose for the story? Sure. Um, first of all, uh, Africans were new in Kyoto, in the capital area. Japan is a very big country, and of course, in those days, with transport uh, being taking much, much longer, um, there had not been, as far as we know, any Africans that went to the centre of the country. There would have been quite a lot in Kyushu, in the very, very west of the country, where the uh, ships from both uh, Macau, Portuguese ships from Macau, but also Chinese ships, uh, probably mostly from Fujian or Guangdong. Um, docked and they had Africans on as well. So it's not that there were, weren't any Africans in Japan, it's just that there weren't any Africans commonly within the area where Nobunaga and the people of Miyako, modern-day Kyoto uh, were. So there, there's that point. Then we go on to the next uh, part of your question, which is to do with his significance really within the story of Nobunaga. Um, I didn't uh, we didn't choose any narrative. We went with the sources that uh, tell us um, about the narrative of uh, Yasuke being there at the last the last stand, if you like. So what happened, uh, for those that don't know, is Nobunaga was extremely powerful. He was he's considered the first of the great unifiers, um, followed by Hideyoshi and then by Tokugawa Yasu. And Nobunaga was essentially killed in a coup d'etat by one of his leading generals, a man called Akechi Mitsuhide. Now, nobody really knows why Akechi did this. There are lots of theories. Uh, the book does go into some of them. Um, but the fact is, one day, Akechi Mitsuhide decided that he would assassinate Nobunaga, essentially. Uh, Nobunaga is heading to uh, to battle, uh, heading to the front uh, against the, a different clan called the Mori clan, who were in western Honshu. Uh, he, he stops for the night in Kyoto on the way to the battlefront. Uh, he's got about 30 um, close attendants with him. One of these people is Yasuke. Uh, Akechi Mitsuhide uh, has 13,000 soldiers with him. He has been ordered also to proceed to the same battlefront, but decides instead to attack Nobunaga with 13,000 soldiers. Now, if you think about it, there's, it's, a, it's a no-brainer. Uh, of course, uh, Nobunaga's 30 men cannot hold out against um, the might of 13,000 men. And therefore, although they put up a very brave fight, it didn't last last for very long. It probably would have lasted minutes. Uh, Nobunaga is given the time by his men's sacrifice to uh, find a, a quiet room in the middle of the Honoji temple. And he... and along with Mori Ramaro, his lover, and Yasuke, uh, they witness Nobunaga's seppuku, 
uh, he performs the ritual disembowelment, which uh, is everybody knows about. Some people call it harakiri, but it's supposed to be really called seppuku. And legend has it, we will never know because all of the men in that room are dead. Uh, legend has it that Mori took Nobunaga's head, which is supposed to speed up the death process. You can imagine once you've cut your belly, it's rather painful. So the the head is chopped to um, stop the pain. And then Mori Ranmaru would have performed the same seppuku and Yasuke would have maybe almost definitely performed the task of decapitating Mori to stop his pain. Now, again, we'll never know for sure because everybody in that room died uh, apart from Yasuke, but legend has it that Nobunaga's last order was to Yasuke, save the head. Don't let the head get into enemy hands. Take the head to my son, to Nobunaga's son. So Yasuke's order is to save the head because if the head gets into the hands of the enemy, it's a very, very powerful talisman, a very, very um, powerful legitimizing factor. If Akechi had the head, he could hold it up and say, I am the, the victor. I am Nobunaga's vanquisher. And from there, he could easily have persuaded more people to take his side. So Yasuke having saved Nobunaga's head is considered by many people in Japan at least to have changed the course of Japanese history by ensuring that Akechi did not get the head. Anyway, Nobunaga runs, uh, sorry, Yasuke runs with the head to Nobunaga's son who is a short distance away in a different temple called the Myokakuji and then they fight in a palace which is just next to the Myokakuji uh, while uh, they've got about 200 men and Akechi has uh, still has his 13,000 odd. So of course that doesn't end very well and very quickly he is uh, Nobunaga's son Nobutada is also vanquished and all his men are vanquished too. Uh, at this point, we hear from a Jesuit source that uh, Yasuke surrenders. He's probably wounded. It kind of suggests that he's wounded. And Akechi uh, kind of scorns him and sends him under escort back to the Jesuit church, which again is about five to ten minutes walk away. So there, this is all in a very small area of Kyoto. Um, we hear from the Jesuits that they gave, give great thanks to God for uh, having spared Yasuke's life. And then that, tantalizingly, is the final confirmed source on his life. So after that, he kind of just disappears from recorded history, uh, unfortunately. Such a, that's such an adventurous life. <laughs> and uh, yeah, as I was listening to you tell the story of Yasuke, I actually remembered that... In many of the Japanese TV shows, especially Taiga Dolama, the, yep. the NHK-run uh, TV show, or in many of the game, video games, yep. um, like Senkoku Basara and all of, uh, a lot of other games, um, Yasuke didn't really appear. Well, it's funny you should say that. He appeared in the current Taiga drama. He appeared last weekend. Uh, oh, it, was, okay. it, it, was a, it was a big debate in the Yasuke kind of community, if you can call it that, uh, 
uh, a lot of journalists who uh, keep up to date with these things, especially, were debating as to whether he would appear or not. Because uh, Akechi Mitsuhide, the, the uh, usurper, actually happens to be the main character in this year's Tiger drama. So um, it was a big, it's a big moment. I didn't see it actually myself, unfortunately, but I am reliably informed that he did appear. He's also appeared in three other Tiger dramas as well. Um, the first one was in 1990, which was about Nobunaga, uh, Nobunaga, King of Japangu, uh, which takes, it's also from a Jesuit kind of perspective, actually. Um, then there's one on Hideyoshi later on in the 1990s where he appears. And then finally, um, I'm going to get my dates wrong here. Uh, I think it's one about Kuroda Kambe, uh, and it's around about 2004, 2005, where he appears as well. But you're quite right. He doesn't appear in that many. But since 1990, any that have shown the Honnoji incident uh, or the death of Nobunaga, I think he has appeared. Um, as to computer games, uh, he's appeared... Uh, I'm not a computer game expert, but I keep on being told by this student or that student oh mr lockley uh did you know yasuke is in this game did you know yasuke is in this game um so uh, i think he's probably appeared in maybe at least five different games uh the most recent of which or the most the biggest of which was neil uh which sold really well about two or three years ago oh yeah i was going to get that game hmm, maybe i will uh, get it he's, he's actually a baddie in the game um you can fight mm -hmm. him uh but he's he's a, a good baddie if you like he he's he's fighting to bring nobunaga back from the dead that's the, the story in the game so um i'm sure any people who want to find out more about that can uh access neo somewhere um, if I can uh, ask a follow-up question, you mentioned that after the 1990s, there were more TV shows featuring Yasuke. Was there a reason um, why he didn't appear in all the shows before? What, um, um, yeah, is there a reason for good that? Question, good question. I don't know the answer as to how many tiger drama before that actually featured nobunaga i'm not i'm not certain i would suggest that if any of them did feature nobunaga before that then the reason why he didn't appear is because his character at that time was pretty much unknown um he the jesuit renderings of yasuke's life were translated uh, over a long time uh, from the original medieval Portuguese into Japanese, and they were released sometime in the 40s. Uh, off the top of my head, I think it was 43, 1943. And at that point, Japanese people could, for the first time, access the Jesuit, um, the Jesuit letters, uh, re re reports. Prior to this, there'd, there'd been two or three copies of these reports mouldering away in libraries in Portugal or the Vatican, and literally nobody could uh, access them. So these are a massive, great source of information for Japanese historians. And um, Yasuke's story appears within these. Um, but it, I mean, he's, he's only one tiny section within a massive, massive lot of reports. So it took a couple of decades for people to actually uh, investigate his story. The first um, story based on his life it came out in 
I think it was 1969. And then Endor Shusakas came out two years later in, I think, 71. Um, uh, after that, then there's a couple of decades until the Tiger drama start to feature him. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing it's just lack of knowledge. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's very fascinating. Now, I understand that your um, research has a lot to do with linguistics. And in the book, you mentioned quite a few times of how Jesuits and other foreigners or Yasuke who came to Japan had to learn Japanese within a very short amount of time. Um, could you tell us about Japanese learning back then, 400 years ago? Wow, interesting question. Okay, so Nobu, no, sorry, Nobu, Valiano was the inspector of missions, and he came to all of the missions, be they in India, in China, in Japan, and saw that many of the missionaries were not learning local languages. His first task, almost literally the first task when he got off the ships in all of these places, was to insist that the missionaries learn local languages thoroughly, properly, and with the correct um, mannerisms, the correct uh, ways of behaving, uh, the correct etiquette, which goes with language. Um, therefore, uh, although there had been two or three very, very fluent uh, missionaries before that, after Valiano's inspection tour, there are many, many more, and there's a much more systemized way of learning Japanese for these missionaries. Um I wouldn't say there was a school as such, but there were tutors. Uh, there were there were Japanese converts who uh, taught the Jesuit missionaries, uh, and then there were, there were also seminaries, um, schools for priests, uh, mainly for Japanese students. But there were also some uh, Portuguese or other European students within these seminaries, and they would have learnt Japanese at the same time as the Japanese students were learning Latin. And Portuguese. That was one of that was part of the curriculum. Um, th these are kind of what you might call the first international schools in Japanese history, and as such, they are a very interesting thing to look at um, for me. Anyway, I'm not sure if everybody else would be. Now, Yasuke, we know that like, Yasuke learned a lot of Japanese because the Japanese sources record that, um, and if he, they record that he. Um, was talking to talking to Nobunaga. Nobunaga talked to him incessantly. He couldn't stop talking to him. Of course, there was no way Nobunaga was going to be able to speak any other language that Yasuke spoke. So therefore, that must have been in Japanese. And it must have been a very good level of Japanese as well for those conversations to be so uh, expansive. I think, though there is no proof of this, that part of Valiano's policy of the missionaries and people connected to them learning more Japanese would have been the reason why Yasuke uh, learned Japanese so quickly. Um, by the time he meets Nobunaga, he's been in Japan for only two years. Um, so it would have been quite a crash course, I would think. Wow, that's pretty fast for yeah. someone to learn Japanese comparing to um, Japanese learning nowadays. Well, yes and no. I mean, he was there in the place and he was living the life and doing the things that, that he needed to, to do. Remember, if you're going to 
be in an audience with a, a lord or uh, you've got to have the right comportment. You've got to have the right etiquette. You certainly don't normally look up. Uh, you keep your head to the floor, etc., uh, etc. Et um, you need to know how to receive gifts and how to give gifts and the correct ways of doing that as well. And I think Valiano, being a nobleman from Italy, would have been very, very aware of this etiquette need and would have made sure that Jeske and everybody else who worked with him was able to behave themselves in an appropriate manner, um, in, in, in the appropriate manner, with the appropriate manners. Um, Jeske would have met at least three, four, possibly five daimyo, um, lords, um, in their castles by this point. Nobunaga would have been the last in a long line of very, very important people that he met. And therefore, he would have honed his uh, behavior, uh, his mannerisms and his etiquette to meet that need by then. So I think if you're learning a language, the more you use it in the more practical situations you do, then uh, you learn it quicker. I mean, you yourself... uh, uh, Jingyi, you probably learned because you had to uh, in any language that you've learned, and it's been there's always a reason and a motivation for that. I completely agree. Good. And now that you mention um, in your book, you, I think it was in the beginning, you specifically uh, mentioned that they uh, that that their Japanese they were the Jesuits at least. They became efficient in speaking quite soon. And this kind of ties to uh, what you mentioned earlier, this type of sources you had to rely on. Um, And you didn't mention anything written by Yasuke. No, uh, and it's highly unlikely he would have been literate. Um, In this age, literacy was confined uh, in all parts of the world to a very, very small percentage of people. Uh, In Japan, the same as in medieval Europe, or sorry, early modern Europe. Um, Therefore, for somebody like Yasuke to have written, uh, to being literate would have been extremely unusual. Uh, I do know of one source of an African in Japan who is literate just slightly after this, um, because there was an African working for the English East India Company, and there's a reference to a letter written by him uh, from what is now Okinawa as a report on the conditions down there. Uh, unfortunately, that letter is lost, or I, I don't know where it is. I would love to see it. But that would have been written in, in English. Uh, as to Jesuit literacy in Japanese, there were some very, very literate um, Jesuits, and they uh, composed graceful Japanese. Uh, Freus, who's one of our main records for Yasuke, uh, also uh, was very literate in Japanese and he was a confidant of Nobunaga uh, because of, of this ability. Um, essentially, the Jesuits started Japanese studies from a, from a European or Western perspective. They were the first pioneers of this uh, academic um, wave, if you like. Did, they did the same in China as well and the same in some of the Western Indian uh, or the Indian subcontinental places where they had missions as well. Uh, Ricky, uh, the famous Jesuit who uh, became vi- l- literally a member of the Chinese court, was 
ordered by Valiano to learn Chinese. So we can see that Valiano's effect upon all of this, uh, this very nascent and very new academic field was uh, inspired by Valiano. And Yasuke was part of it. Yeah, and we all have him to thank for. There you go. Yes, we all have yes. him to thank for us, for our own academic field. Yes. And uh, so in our previous conversations, um, you kind of mentioned that you thought it was important to learn history and culture when learning secondary languages. Yep. And, um, and since your book also mentions about language learning back in the medieval period. Um, I wonder if, um, I wonder what you think as some of the important roles that history and culture may play in language learning and how do you suggest we approach them? Okay, well, this is my specialist field now, so I can talk about this even more confidently <laughs> than African samurais. Okay, so if you learn a language as purely uh, a subject which is unrelated to other subjects, it's very, very difficult to find um, to find motivation for most people. Of course, there are some people who just love learning languages, whatever, but for the majority of people, uh, it's very difficult just to learn a language when you have nothing, no, no roots, no, no, nothing to give you, make you like the language or help you understand that it's part of you anyway, even though you haven't learned it already. So therefore, uh, stories of very good language learners like Yasuke, who probably spoke about four or five languages, or very stories, let's take an example. So if I'm teaching English to Japanese students, they see no relevance whatsoever in English to their lives. It's much, much easier for me to get them to be motivated in a class if you have a story which they really want to read. Yasuke's story uh, is a story that everybody really wants to read. It's very compelling and therefore it gives a purpose to learning the language. Now, I've got hundreds of stories like this. Uh, Yasuke's just happens to be the most compelling, but there are plenty of other ones. And many of them are about Japanese people who went and did wonderful things around the world. And therefore, the students who are learning English see that, oh, abs actually, English does have a purpose. Uh, English is part of my inheritance, part of my culture already. Uh, and therefore, uh, something inside you clicks when you find that there is a connection with this language in your heart or in your brain or in your culture already and therefore you you become more far more likely uh, to uh, exhibit a positive feeling towards language in Japanese it's called in English I think that's translated as international posture a way of feeling more in tune with uh, a society uh, or society is the wrong word, a feeling of internationalism, which helps you want to learn more English or any lang language for that matter. I totally agree. I mean, speaking from a person that studies culture and history, I, I think we definitely need to incorporate more history and culture content in um, language courses. Although, unfortunately, I think in most U.S. universities, at least, um, language courses like Japanese courses don't have too much 
on history, maybe something about culture. Um, everybody loves tea culture, it's tea ther- ceremony, or anime culture. That's a big thing right now. Anime, anime is a good way for yes. attracting young people. Uh, anime, manga, uh, that kind of thing. I, I find that often with culture, it tends to be uh, when it's taught within kind of a university language setting or something, it tends to be slightly dry. Um, I think we need something to liven it up. So if we're going to teach about the tea ceremony, for example, um, what is the history of the tea ceremony? Why do people do it? Uh, what is the significance of the the patterns on the on the pots? Uh, the way that movement is done, that kind of thing. Instead of, uh, I think I think that kind of thing is what brings interest and in, intrinsic interest to any subject, really. And um, I would like to promote that within language courses everywhere, uh, US included. That That's quite awesome. And uh, so in your own teaching, how do you incorporate your uh, re- research on history um, into your language teaching? Uh, all of my classes are done on a theme basis. The actual field is the way of teaching is called content and language integrated learning. So integrating both content and language and therefore, uh, the theme of my content is normally history. And that might be anything from the history of Korean food in Japan to ramen culture and where ramen comes from and how the international stories behind that are. Uh, it might be manga uh, and the history behind manga uh, because it brings those things which people eat or read on a daily basis, it brings into the textbook. So people are automatically connecting anyway, because they eat ramen, they eat uh, various Korean foods. Kimchi, for example, is one of the most common pickles in Japan these days. Uh, they read manga even on the, f- on the phone or I- from a, a book um, on a daily basis. So we're bringing these subjects, uh, which are people's daily lives anyway, into uh, my textbooks uh, or my subject themes. Uh, Yasuke's story or the story of uh, the Japanese pirate called Yamada Nagamasa who became a king in southern Thailand, for example. All of these swashbuckling adventurous stories are also part of this. So I try to balance out the cultural sides, uh, the international multicultural mixing sides of modern Japanese culture, and of course also the uh, compelling stories like Yasuke's or Yamada Nagamasa's, which want make people really really want to read and find out what happens to these people in their lives wow that sounds like a very cool course (laughs) and must be popular too i hope so (laughs) (laughs) well i sure hope i get to teach a course like this in the future well come and talk to me and maybe we can make it happen well cool i'll I'll take notes of that (laughs) Well, uh, I guess we've taken enough time from you. Uh, thank you so much for, for such a wonderful conversation. And thank you so much for having me and asking such good questions, especially the language learning ones I've never been asked before, I don't think. Uh, so I didn't actually have any answers prepared or thought about for that. So I hope those questions uh, came out right. No, it, it was it was great. It was um, something that I think a lot of um, our us language teachers out there need to hear <laughs> and i certainly hope uh when when your future when, when another book comes out in the future you'll get to um come again join us again and talk about it and talk more on the language perspective 
I would be very happy to do that indeed. Yeah. And thank you, everybody, for joining us in the New Books on Japanese Studies channel. Uh, if you want to learn more about Yasuke, the African Samurai, check out this new book by Thomas Lockley and Geoffrey Gerard. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode. And until then, goodbye. Thank you.